This is Neijing Now, prioritizing well-being. Neijing is the vitality that shields us from disease. Neijing Now, demystifying medicine, cultivating resilience, empowering host resistance, prioritizing primary prevention. I'm Dr. Jayshree Chander. I welcome you to another short clip exploring Neijing Now. Today I have with me Ms. Falashide Madupe and Ms. Katie Lanahan. Katie Lanahan is a former teacher in the West Contra Costa County of California, specifically Kennedy School in Richmond, California. And Ms. Falashide Madupe is a former teacher from the same school. She is transitioning into the medical profession. And I'm very happy to be talking with the both of you today. First off, I'd like to know why you went into teaching. Felicity. So we both did this program called Teach for America, which is a program that basically recruits recent college graduates and puts them in under-resourced schools. I had an opportunity to work with someone who had done the program, and she was just talking about the impact specifically to be a person of color, teaching students of color who have been let down by education so that's what attracted me to Teach for America. It was also a way for me to think about medicine and health in a new way because I knew I wanted to be a doctor. I thought of health in a very expansive way and thought many different things contributed to health. And so I wanted to gain skills around interacting with people, especially interacting with people from a certain demographic, and then also have an opportunity to be like, hello, demographic, we need more doctors from you. <laughs> so start liking science and come join us so we can change the world around us. Nice, beautiful. So you already knew that you wanted to go to medical school before you became a teacher, and you decided to become a teacher for some time, basically to broaden your own perspective and get an understanding of the demographic that you want to serve. Yes. How many years were you a teacher? Two years. And how was it for you? Crazy. <laughs> Why was it crazy? I learned more than I could ever like have hoped to learn. It was a challenging experience. It was an enlightening experience. It was a really hard but growth-producing experience. And it was lovely in many ways, getting a chance to interact with kids. They're actually kind of awesome, even when they're teenagers, especially when they're teenagers. They're really cool. Kids are awesome. <laughs> okay, so tell me what was challenging. Working in West Contra Costa School District, for instance, California is one of the worst places for education in the United States. Like I think it's like second from the bottom, 48 out of 50. California is number 48 out of 50 states in terms of how bad our schools are? When you're at the end of the list, that's how bad. <laughs> nice, but we've got good surf. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's what our kids were doing. I wish. So West Country Costa was really, not just under-resourced, but really is run really backward. Whatever's happening in that district is not serving the students. Wow. So West Contra Costa County is the worst county in almost the worst state in the United States. And you... We're teaching there. I'm actually really honored to be in your presence. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you're serving in a really difficult situation. You did it for two years. That's amazing. I guess. <laughs> so what's not functioning? What's dysfunctional there? For one thing, our students are coming in with significant gaps in their skill level. Very significant gaps. Like basic multiplication, addition, subtraction, cannot read at a middle school level. You're talking about high school now. Yeah, we're talking about high school students who have extreme literacy gaps and extreme math gaps. 
And of course, that affects every subject that you participate in. On top of that, you know, they're coming from a situation where their neighborhood and environment is not really conducive to learning. And their school environment, our school culture was not really conducive to learning. So what was it like teaching in that environment? Teaching that environment forced me to understand what it means to connect with people, what it means to need to understand. Katie, what drew you to becoming a teacher? So I feel like I was always an educator growing up. I was always part of mentorship programs in my elementary school even. And then in high school, I have a younger sister who I always tutored. And I was a ski instructor when I was in high school as well. So education was very familiar to me. But the experiences that were the most powerful for me were always the ones where I was working with underserved students. So in college, I tutored first-generation college students, low-income students, or disability students in a free program for them the gaps that they had that kept them from succeeding and being able to be that person to fill those gaps in was really rewarding. When I had the opportunity and was accepted to teach for America, and so that was initially how I got into teaching high school chemistry. So tell me what it's like to be the teacher in the classroom where there are huge skill gaps. I mean, how do you manage that? How do you manage that is entirely based on making relationships. My best way of managing a class of 30 students was to have an individual relationship and manage an individual relationship with 30 students at the same time. (laughs) Basically being able to call on like, hey, we're good, now focus. And having students like bring down their walls enough to be able to be like, hey, maybe I do want to learn this, or maybe I just at the very basic level want to be respectful right now. Beyond that, it was building confidence because when students have skill gaps, Even if they do want to learn or are interested in not failing, they've been put down so many times and think they're so stupid or they're so not intelligent. They can't do anything. They will act up or they will just not want to participate because they don't want to they don't want to see themselves fail anymore. And building confidence is the hardest thing to do. Beautifully said. Building relationships and building confidence. Beautiful. I was going to say, on on that line of building confidence and their confidence being knocked down, the way math is set up in our district is that students are required to take algebra in eighth grade. And this is regardless if they pass sixth grade math or seventh grade math or what their skills are at that level. Every student in our district takes algebra one in eighth grade. I took algebra one in eighth grade and I was on the advanced track. And it was still hard for me. And now we have students getting put in Algebra 1 with still they can't multiply or divide fractions or add or subtract negative numbers. So they fail Algebra, logically, in 8th grade. They get put back in Algebra in ninth grade, and they fail it again. Now, who likes a class that they failed twice? Nobody. So our kids hate math. We have kids in Algebra all the way through their senior year, which means that they've taken Algebra 1 five times. What kind of confidence does that give us now to teach chemistry or physics or any class that involves math? And as soon as there's a math concept, half the class will check out. I don't like math. This is not a math class. I'm not doing this. Or I'm just going to go to sleep. Wow. So what's the barrier to just getting them to learn to multiply and add and do the basics before they get into algebra? You know, in elementary school, there is a system where the teachers, it's a self-contained classroom, and teachers do a good job of teaching those general classes. And when kids get to middle school, they're split up, they're switching classes every period, and, you know, kids start to slip through the cracks. And so we need to understand that different students are learning things at different rates, and that's okay. And that we don't need to push them all into Algebra 1 in 8th grade because there's some study that shows that kids in Algebra 1 in 8th grade sends more kids to college. 
along the same vein, you're thinking about challenges that happen like in WCC. WCC means West Contra Costa County. <laughs> yeah. After our first year, we were supposed to evaluate why we had a lot of failures in biology. And after evaluating this, we came up with a plan of action so that we could have students more prepared for science and so that they can experience less failure when we present it. And of course, we get shot down because in the district, there's no space for that sort of creativity around like actually addressing the needs of your students. Whether or not students need remedial education, they're immediately put in graduation requirement classes. Well, if our students need help, well, we need to fill in those gaps before building on them. And we didn't have space as teachers to like fill in those gaps. And the reason that you don't have the space is because of the standardization rules, so that the schools meet the same standards as other schools in other districts, but they're inappropriate standards for a situation where there are gaps. So the district mandates all ninth graders take biology. The case with this year, unfortunately, is is that there was no ninth grade biology teacher. Until last week, I was the only science teacher at the school of 850 students. Wait, uh, people on the radio can't see my jaw dropping, but (laughs) that is incredible. Why? Well, the other sections of biology that were open, we created because we couldn't find anyone to teach biology and chemistry. So we moved all the chemistry students who had failed biology into biology sections so I could take more chemistry students. But the district told us that they wouldn't honor those sections of biology because if students had failed biology, they can just take it in summer school. We serve a large community of Latino students, and many of them go to Mexico or home with their families, or they work. There's not enough space in summer school as it is to accommodate the need for all the students failing. And so our administration actually had to really fight to get a teacher into that classroom, and luckily last week a teacher started. It's a difficult thing when there's these mandates, but then there's not the support to back up those mandates. The mandates are coming from good intentions to try to raise the standard of education or equalize the opportunity, but there's no support to actually implement these standards. What I sense is frustration, that you both really care about your students, you're really capable of connecting to your students, you really want to do a good job, you really want to teach the kids, but you face so many obstacles that it makes it almost impossible. In general, what I find is that my day with my students goes great. Like, I can teach, I have a good rapport with my students, there's a few hiccups. As soon as I leave the classroom and start talking about the bigger picture stuff, we look at test scores and our test scores are getting worse and worse each year. And we're putting in more and more time and getting paid less and less. So it's really discouraging to have people look at you and say, well, you need to do better, you need to do better, when the system is falling down around us. That sounds like serious, serious occupational stress. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) being a teacher is so stressful oh my gosh starting medical school is less stressful I was plagued with anxiety when I was a teacher I mean ultimately even if you're doing their best in the classroom the students you put so much effort in they still don't have so many opportunities they can ace your class and be amazing and then not have their papers and can't go to college or they're acing your class and not any other class because they don't feel inspired a lot of anxiety related to teaching on top of that these students are in an area that is anxiety causing for them as well and so it's a roller coaster you could have your favorite student on point working hard for you and then the next day blow up cuss you out and and storm out of the class because you ask them to put their head up during class or you ask them to switch their seat or my favorite you don't give them a stamp and these are high schoolers a stamp 
for grading purposes, it's common to use a stamp to mark papers and then you can count the stamps up. It's a quick way to grade. A 17-year-old shutting you out for a whole entire hour because you didn't give them one point in the first five minutes of class. And this has happened to me with boys that look like men. This, to me, is a direct correlation where they're coming from. What's their state of mind coming into the classroom? And so it's completely unpredictable day to day. And as a teacher, you learn how to deal with that better and better as you go along but that adds to some of the stress and the teacher dreams and the anxiety about Mondays. What are teacher dreams? Dreaming about teaching. In my first year it was mostly my fourth period class that was the most unruly and I would dream about them doing things in class from just talking like I couldn't get control of the class I couldn't get them to stop talking in my dreams or it could be worse and now my dreams are more I wake up usually like an hour or two before I need to and in my head I'm planning like what am I going to do that day what am I going to do that day but I still have two full hours of sleep and most of the time my plans are done and I don't need to be thinking about it but in my head I'm just cycling over and over and over like what am I going to be doing what am I going to be doing what do I what do I need to do when I get up? Well, one, it sounds like you really care about your job, but it also sounds like that's a lot of anxiety, very high stress situation, and almost a little PTSD-ish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. Yeah, I, I had one moment where I, like, <laughs> joked, but, like, seriously considered that I might have PTSD from my interactions with a specific student who has really, really erratic behavior, whose erratic behavior could like control my entire class so I teacher dreams about a similar fourth period class my first year <laughs> and next year Katie has a student one day I have to take over Katie's class because she's not there and I realize that I'm just like kind of freaking out about it wow this is the impact of having to deal with so many different personalities and so many different vicarious trauma students have gone through a lot of trauma because I know the students personal history and then having to deal with all those ups and downs those roller coasters they're not just roller coasters of one person they're roller coasters of 30 kids at a time it's actually the roller coaster of the community basically I'm going to just switch gears here for a second what do you guys think about the, the evaluations of teachers being based on standardized test scores of students I don't even think students should be evaluated on standardized test scores, let alone teachers. Here, here. To be honest, those standardized tests aren't really measuring the intelligence of our students. They're written in ways that are completely inaccessible. I wouldn't even know how to answer this question. It takes me a while to like deduce what this question is asking. I've been through four years of college. And so I don't think they're fairly written. I don't think they're engaging for our students. I don't think they're the way that students should actually demonstrate knowledge in general. You can recall a fact. Great. Big deal. What are the standardized tests? So STAR testing is California standards testing, and you do it for most subjects like math, science, English, et cetera, and then you get those scores back, and that's how the school is generally evaluated and how well their students perform their tests. Yeah, so they take them in May, um, and it's supposed to test them on the whole year. My first year teaching, the test was on April 13th, and the school year ended in the beginning of June. So I was supposed to have given my students all of their curriculum by April 13th, and then we still have two months left of school. They're going to be tested on their fund of knowledge that they haven't really been taught yet. Yeah, so as much as what we got through, it's in like a two to three week period, they get tested in all of their subjects, and these tests are two to three hours long. These scores affect the school immensely. They do not affect the student personally. It's not on their transcript. It's not part of their graduation requirement. It's not associated with their grades because we don't get the scores back until August. 
our students really don't care and about the scores. They're made, made to sit for these long, tedious tests about things that they don't understand because a lot of them can't access the questions, as Flash today was saying. And so some of our students just say, forget it and don't try or don't show up. And what's the impact on the school? The scores are linked with how we rate the effectiveness of a school, and that effectiveness is often linked with funding. So, for example, our school had received a million-dollar grant per year, a million dollars, that allowed us to fund smaller class sizes and resources, money for teachers, etc. And we got the money because we were a low-performing school. We weren't able to improve our scores or keep class sizes as small as was required by the grant, and so we lost the million-dollar grant this year. That meant 13 teachers, doubling our class sizes. What's your class size now? 40. What's your experience now of teaching 40 kids in a class? It's a lot harder to get around to all the students. Luckily, the size isn't affecting the behavior, but it's definitely affecting the one-on-one attention, the amount of time it spends for me to grade Okay, so standardized test scores impact school funding, but how do they affect the teacher? We just have to evaluate the scores within their department and think about ways to change them. So there's nothing connected to my position specifically and how my students perform on the exam. But because the scores are so important for the school, there's a lot of pressure put on each teacher and department to improve the scores, which I think really takes our focus from improving our curriculum and the quality of our education to preparing our students for to answer multiple choice tests. It's not serving anyone, really, because now we're, we're so stressed out and we have pressure from the administration to prepare our students for these tests rather than just preparing our students for actually understanding the subjects. And preparing them for life. Yeah, exactly. There's no life preparation, <laughs> no space for that. So in India, the teacher is considered next to God. It's considered the highest profession, and the teacher is the person that you owe the most respect and most gratitude towards. What is your experience of being a teacher here in West Contra Costa County? Do you feel valued? Do you feel that you are doing an important job? My interaction with students' parents is that they're incredibly grateful and thankful for the work that I do. But what I see from the students is that in order to get their respect, you really have to earn it. They think so lowly of their school and their community that they automatically assume if you work at our high school, you must be a bad teacher because you couldn't get a job anywhere else. You couldn't have possibly chosen that. And so you have to really prove to students that you're there for a reason. And sometimes it surprises them when they see that you have accomplishments or that you're actually intelligent or that you're capable. That doesn't just speak on the way people think of teachers. It speaks on the way that they think of their community. But I will say that when I first started teaching, I felt like I had to make excuses because it isn't a highly regarded profession. In college, it was sort of like education major was the easy major. It was the major that you took if, you know, you didn't want to work super hard. And yet it is one of the hardest jobs in the world. It's not hard to become a teacher, however, but it's incredibly hard to do a good job at it. Well said. And do you feel valued by the administration? Yes, they definitely are supportive and appreciative of the hard work that we're putting in. I think that some of the issues with the regulations at our school site come from people who don't have experience in the classroom. They don't understand the nuances of teaching in a difficult setting such as this. They don't understand the supports that are necessary. They look at the scores, they look at research, and then they use statistics in a way that isn't helpful to our students or their learning. And do you feel valued in your pay scale? Absolutely not. (laughs) 
this year, you know, we lost all that funding. And so we can't get paid for any overtime hours that we work. And yet we're all expected to work 40 hours of adjunct duty time, which is unpaid time. This year, essentially, we're working more and getting paid less. I've taken on a lot of leadership. Flash I did last year as well. I'm department chair. I'm head of a academy, which is a small learning community. And I'm also a part of a teacher leadership team. And none of those things are paid positions that they take hours upon hours of my time. And that's already on top of the hours I don't get paid to grade or plan. We get paid bell to bell. We don't get paid for passing periods or lunch. So it's six and a half hours a day that I get paid. And I work 10 to 12 plus weekends. Well, following that, that's just the reality. Like how much work is free. It's ridiculous. And expected. It's expected that you grade, of course. Like you need to get grades in. It's expected that you're planning for your class. Of course, you need to plan. But is that time given? No. I mean, it's expected that you interact with your student, that you have time for them after school. Of course, you don't get paid for that. Okay. Anything else you guys want to add about what life is like as a teacher and its relationship to your own health and happiness? I've really enjoyed the experience and the opportunity to get to know students in this way and to learn about what is going on in our country because sometimes, you know, you get in your own little bubble and it's been really enlightening and and the students are really awesome. You know, in my first year of teaching, I gained over 15 pounds just because I didn't feel like I had time to exercise and you cope via eating or whatever it is that helps you get through the day. And so, the stresses on the job are real and they're vicarious trauma just experienced by hearing these kids' stories and having them come to you for help because they don't trust anybody else. So, you know, learning ways to deal and to process can be difficult, especially for me living in a very different world than them. Every day I felt like I was living two lives. I was living the white person California life over here in Berkeley and then every day going over to their world and teaching and seeing that juxtaposition was mentally difficult for me on top of all the other teacher stresses we talked about earlier (laughs) my experience teaching pretty much just showed me like our youth are amazing and really just filled with like popcorn kernels of potential and what we're doing in preparing them for life or just preparing our future as like a society is so scary we are like killing the future it's just really easy to see that we're setting ourselves up for failure by not supporting education not seeing education as what it needs to be the center the like the holy grail of like our entire world well said and for you personally for me personally definitely health-wise teaching was something that very quickly became obvious that's something I wouldn't be able to maintain because it was extremely draining yeah teaching is just the way it is is not sustainable basically it's not sustainable for the teacher for the teacher it's just really just physically and emotionally and mentally draining And maybe even financially. Definitely financially draining. Well, then you really have to hand it to those teachers who stick it out and have these long lifetime careers of teaching. You really have to hand it to them. I applaud them. Thank you, Falasha Day. Thank you, Katie, for joining me today. It's been a really powerful conversation. Really thank you for sharing your experiences. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. I'm Dr. Jayshree Chandar, creator of Nanjing Now, a podcast about prioritizing well-being, on the web at neijingnow.org. Nanjing Now is independent and entirely listener-supported. If you enjoyed the clip, please share it with your friends. Like us on Facebook and donate generously. Your support is essential to keeping Nanjing Now alive.